You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Good morning, Faith Church. If you don't know me, I'm Brian Eide, one of the elders here. I had the privilege to preach last week, and I'm looking forward to that again here as we continue to make our way through Esther. Would you, if you're able and willing, uh, rise for the reading of God's Word? If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab one. We'll make it our gift to you today. You can get one at the uh, back of the worship center here. And, and I just would say this, right? God's Word, God's Word is powerful. The Scriptures say it's living it's active. It's able to transform hearts. And, and if I, I just told you briefly, it's what really got a hold of me uh, uh, around the age of 18, 19 years old. And it, and it changed who I am. Some of you, if you haven't gotten into a habit of routinely being before God's Word, I want to encourage you. <laughs> You're missing out. There, there's something that God wants to accomplish in you through the power of His Word. That's why we're standing here this morning in acknowledgement that His Word has divine authority. And so let's go ahead. Would you join me? Esther 7, 1 through 6. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, and I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Asuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, uh, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know we're working our way through Esther. And just as a, a brief recap of, of where we've been, right? Uh, we just want to just mention, uh, again, what, what, a, what a marvelous short story this is. But don't forget in the process of thinking about it as a story uh, that this is history as well. Uh, this, uh, the two have met. And I, I would just put out there at the front end of this sermon, I believe too many of us read the scripture as if it's just a short story. Just as Esther is history that mirrors something big and dramatic that happened and unfolded in real time, I think God is still doing that. And as we read his word, it's, it's his, really, his heart and desire that his word would gain traction in our present lives uh, in the same way. Well, let's take a look. Ex exposition, uh, the start of this story, we, we have been through already how you've got the Jews have in faraway Persia who never returned back to their homeland, Jerusalem, when they had the chance to. They were in exile, and it was under King Cyrus that they were living. 
And here, uh, you know, we had, uh, again, the rise of a most unlikely queen to power. It was Queen Esther. And you can go back in week one and hear more about that. But in the process, we, we saw very quickly uh, that as, as the rising action set in, there was a dilemma that had not been anticipated at all. There was uh, her uh, cousin had come at odds with the wicked Haman, and wicked Haman had issued a decree in his hot anger against all of the Jewish people. And Mordecai will be used to remind Esther, for such a time as this, God has chosen you to be queen that you might go to bat for your people. And so she is really moved out of her comfort zone in order that she might take part in God's larger purposes. And so we, we saw that very clearly. And as that happens, uh, she will indeed risk her life uh, going before the queen king, uh, unannounced or uninvited, it was akin to kind of, you know, uh, establishing a, a relationship and an opportunity on, his, on her own terms. And, and I think there's a lot for us, even as we think about, uh, you know, that uh, on a divine level, right? Uh, we can't approach God, the king, on, on our own terms. More on that later. But as we mentioned very clearly over the last couple of weeks, there, there was the real threat on her life for doing that. And she will appear before him, make her request, and she is given favor, not only uh, on one occasion, but on three different occasions, the king will ask, what is your request? And we've just read uh, about this request unfolding in full in this passage this morning. And we're going to unpack that a little bit uh, more, but we'll, we'll see what's going to, you know, transpire. I've got two objectives for the remainder of our time. So that's shorter than last week. I can't promise you uh, that it'll be significantly shorter than last week, but I can say there's only two objectives. The first is to advance through uh, chapters 7 and 8. But then second, I really want to spend the bulk of our time uh, looking at uh, some themes, some significant themes from this book that I believe God would use to strengthen us in our faith presently. And so I, I hope you join me for that here uh, in heart and mind. Let's take a look at the first of these, looking uh, into chapter 7. We've already read a bit of this uh, scripture here uh, to start us out. We know uh, that in the midst of all of this, that as the story continues to unfold, uh, that the wickedness of Haman has been exposed, finally. We've been waiting for that moment, right? Let's just uh, harken back to, to the scripture. I'll put it up here. The request is made, uh, hey, protect us, king. Why? Because a foe has been at work, the wicked Haman. He is finally revealed for who he is. This manipulator uh, of power and, and of fame is now being exposed. And, and so unbeknownst, uh, to him. All of this is going to quickly unravel. Let's think briefly. Let's think briefly about the contrast between Esther and Haman, right? Esther has appeared now uh, multiple times before the king in fear, in trepidation. There is a complete humility in her heart. She realizes that her life is completely in another's hands. Uh, on the flip side, you've got Haman, who has been nothing but presumptuous in his entire relationship with the king. He has been uh, anything but fearful, haughty, 
proud, hungering and lusting for more power. In fact, you could even say his disdain for the king is rather evident in that he continues to try to manipulate the king's power and the status that he's been given uh, for his own ends. So I'm just saying, hey, you've got one coming before the king with this complete attitude of humility, the other uh, with no recognition uh, but only ingratitude and disdain. Well, how quickly... <laughs> This attitude uh, will change, and, and rightly so. Uh, let's take a look at the second part of this, which I'm going to call poetic justice. As we advance further into chapter 7, let's pick it up in verse 7. The king's response to Esther's accusation, uh, the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Well, as we're mentioning, everything is changing in the blink of an eye. Really, everything Haman had lived for and banked on was coming to nothing. And I think we'll come back to that theme in a bit. But how much irony do we see in the midst of these few verses, right? Here you have Haman absolutely groveling before the queen. Now, let's not forget, it was Haman and the other advisors early on in the story that were plotting to, you know, have Queen Vashti uh, basically dismissed, right? Uh, they wouldn't listen to any queen or have any kind of respect for uh, the king's bride. Uh, but here, <laughs> you've got him on his knees groveling, not before the king, but before Esther, who ironically is the only one that might go to bat for him. But in this case, it will come to nothing. A Another irony is that he is definitely the victim of his own deceptions, of his own plots and twists. He, it's going to recoil upon him. And my goodness, uh, the truth be told, we see this very evidently as the story unfolds in the fact that Haman had not a clue that Esther was actually a Jew. He might have thought twice about issuing the decree, or at least the way he did uh, early on, if he had known uh, that the king's, you know, uh, bride was, was actually Jewish. He had no clue. But here, uh, his own deception is coming back to haunt him. He, he had been dealing with people in a way that wasn't transparent, and now uh, he is the victim of uh, something similar, not recognizing uh, what, what he's done to himself. Secondly, we, we just recognize... <laughs> Even this idea of him uh, falling on the couch before the queen is misunderstood as the king enters. There, there's a, a law, a, a protocol that you are not to get within a certain amount of feet uh, of, the queen, uh, of the king's harem, uh, let alone the queen, if she's unattended. And here the, the king is left for the garden, returns. What does he find? Not only is he near, he's at the couch, and he misconstrues this entirely. I'm calling this poetic justice because in some ways, uh, the details certainly aren't all accurate, but he's still getting something of what he's due. You see what I'm saying? Uh, so it, it's poetic justice for sure. Now, 
I got to be honest, we're dealing with a, a rather fickle king who was definitely part of making this, you know, unjust decree in the first place. It's very possible that this is an easy way out for him uh, to wash his hands of the sort of thing without implicating himself as well. So we won't overlook that. But for the moment, Queen Esther has tactfully made her case before the king in a way that doesn't unnecessarily implicate him. And now uh, Haman is the victim of his own deceptions. Well, uh, we see the final irony in this whole thing uh, as we continue on here, because he will uh, be hung uh, on the gallows that he has constructed. Uh, Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance of the king, said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Do you see these ironies? I mean, everything that he was thinking, everything that he was plotting and planning and living for has quickly come to nothing, all right? And it is uh, just very, uh, very curious here how all of this plays out. You know, as we think about it, there, there is a psalm that goes along with this idea, Psalm 7. And Psalm 7 will basically say, hey, what the wicked have planned will recoil upon themselves. You can check it out uh, offline on your own time. Uh, But isn't that just a picture uh, of something uh, I think so iconically important for us to recognize? Hey, evil, evil will someday come to nothing in just this same way. Well, let's take a look here. Uh, As we move on, we've got an astonishing reversal and we've got uh, more irony here to unfold here as, as Esther will be given. Uh, let's just uh, pick it up here uh, in the text, verse 5, chapter uh, 8 here now. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Asuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him uh, on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked." So I think it's important for us to recognize, and and it's stated in the text we've just read, right? Uh, This whole thing is turning around. Haman is no longer in the picture. The the imminent uh, evil uh, presence has has been vanquished. But, But at the same point, this decree that he had manipulated the king into, you know, forming and, and, and establishing in the, in the kingdom it is still in effect. It can't be, as was mentioned, it, it cannot be revoked. So what, what happens here? Obviously, it wasn't maybe as, as Esther would have hoped for, but the king says in no uncertain terms, hey, while I can't do anything to lift the old, cur- uh, the old curse that stood against your people, 
I can have Haman, or I mean, sorry, Mordecai, with the power of the signet ring, the authority that I have laid upon him, he can issue a new decree. If you're not familiar with the idea of the signet ring, those were oftentimes used to, to mark and emboss uh, in a wax seal uh, the, basically the authority uh, of a decree. It would come with the king's own emblem and uh, basically saying, hey, Mordecai, you've been vested with power use it to your advantage. And that's exactly what's going to happen here, all right? So uh, as, as we kind of wrap up uh, the balance of chapter 8, let's take a look here. Uh, though this can't be reversed, it says a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all the peoples. The Jews were to be ready on the day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. So indeed, Mordecai does put out a new decree. And that decree is something akin to, hey, the Jews are able and given full authority and, and blessing of the king to arm themselves and even to defend themselves against the threat that may be posed against them. And you can only imagine the joy and the jubilation uh, that will be a coming. And so it says, uh, Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with great golden crown and robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city where the kings, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Well, we think about the, the contrast between these two decrees. Haman's decree produced fasting and prayer and much fear, right? Uh, you know, Mordecai's will do just the opposite. It will be joy and jubilation and just a, a spirit of gladness uh, will prevail. And my goodness, uh, again, how quickly things have flipped for the people that once might have been emboldened uh, to harm the Jews are now realizing, hey, uh, they are going to uh, you know, be in trouble potentially. And so, again, many of them will actually declare themselves Jews, whether that's a legitimate conversion I can't say. Maybe they are seeing something about the providential nature of God, or maybe they're just pragmatically saving their skin. Uh, I, I really, there's no way I can know. But needless to say, uh, what a reversal uh, of, of all these things. And so uh, we, we've seen, uh, just, just in brief, uh, like how quickly, how quickly uh, these you know, evil plots and plans and twists have come to nothing. And, and again, we come back uh, now to, to look at what I would say would be some, some things that God intends us to draw strength from. The first of these is that God is reigning invisibly, all right? And I want us to, to just ponder that for a second here. And so as, as we've been looking, and the phrase that Dylan put out in week one has been so helpful, uh, while we can't always trace God's hand, we can always trust his heart, right? I want, us, I want us to really stop and think about 
the, the significance of his invisible reign. God is presently reigning. His name, yes, nowhere found in the book of Esther. You won't find reference to God, to Yahweh, to Jesus, none of it. It's gone. And again, in the days of Esther, one might have been inclined to say, where are you, God? And I think, you know, we've been mentioning it a few weeks in a row now, but, but that, is, that is so much fitting with, with what we can go through as well. I, I imagine many of us, if not most of us, maybe all of us, have been in seasons of life where we would just kind of say, where are you, God? Where are you? Some of us, I would say, at times are a little ashamed or embarrassed uh, to even acknowledge that we've been there. Not others. But I want you to know, regardless of where you've been or how you feel about that, that the scriptures themselves echo this very concern. The heart of the psalmist, the songwriters, 150 songs, there are a number of those psalms where those very words are actually penned and put to music. Uh, One says, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Can you relate to that? You want something even more profound? Jesus himself will echo this idea. Jesus, we know. Uh, You can probably think with me as as I mentioned it. His words at the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's, a, that's another way of saying, where, where are you? Where are you? I, I think we should draw a bit of encouragement to know that if the songwriters of old, as well as Jesus himself, were not afraid or ashamed to ask that question, this is not something that God is putting off limits for us to ask either. It isn't wrong to ask the question. My only encouragement to us as we kind of ponder and and maybe stumble and have trouble at times to understand where is God in his invisible reign in our lives, is that we keep the conversation with him going. See, the songwriter does that. When he's asking, where are you, God? He hasn't given up, pulled the plug and said, I'm not going to lift up a song or a prayer or a praise to God. He's just saying, I'm going to be transparent and honest with where I am. And I think we need to know that We need to practice that same thing, to persist, even in those times where it can be hard to to find and to see and to sense God. It's not wrong to ask that question. But I think the other thing that we need to do in the midst of these moments is we need to review the track record, the track record of God's faithfulness, and we need to push out of our minds as we do that, this idea that the good things in our life or the things that have, you know, worked out are mere coincidence. God has a proven track record. He's got it in Scripture, and He's got it in your life as well as mine, too. Sometimes we're blind to that. But let me just remind us in Esther, I just ask you a few questions here. (laughs) Who is it that raised up Esther for such a time as this? Who enabled Mordecai to uncover the plot against the king? Who encouraged Esther to be strong through Mordecai? Who stirred Xerxes with a sleepless night at just the right time in order that Haman's plans might fall to nothing the next morning? Who is it that protected Esther's identity until just the right time? 
Who is it that brought a sudden and unexpected end to Haman and his plans? Who is it that elevated Mordecai to second in command? Who is it that protected the Jews in faraway Jerusalem from an unlikely Gentile kingdom? Folks, there aren't coincidences here if you recognize and connect the dots. Yes, God's reign is invisible, but his fingerprints are all over this story. And I want to just challenge you, if you, if you don't see it in your own life, his fingerprints are all over your story too. It, it might take a little bit of kindling, a little bit of prayer to, to uh, uncover and identify those. But I tell you what, your faith will grow and be strengthened the better you get at being able to recall the track record of God's faithfulness in your life, bringing it to mind and letting it serve as sort of a, a help and a refresher, a refreshment even to the soul in times where he seems to be absent. That's an exercise uh, of, of faith and, and of, of maturing faith. And I want to encourage us in that very thing. There, there is no coincidence. God's reign, though invisible, is evident. Well, let's go ahead. A, a second one I want us to think about. Perfect justice will be realized. Perfect justice will be realized. And, and I, I want to just briefly say this. Haman, though he got his poetic justice, the wrong was made right. There are so many times in our lives where it doesn't end up with that nice, tidy bow. I wish there was some way that we could guarantee, hey, you, you've, you've endured a wrongdoing. You've endured difficulty, something unjust. I wish there was some way of just saying, hey, don't worry, tomorrow uh, God's going to show up and, and it's going to all be better uh, no, I, I can't make you that promise, but I can say absolutely without a shadow of a doubt that there will come a day where all justices, injustices, I'm sorry, will be made right. And I think that's especially important here is, is I just, I, w- I want to say something that I think m- makes some people feel uncomfortable. Uh, we like to sometimes uh, fancy that church is a place where we've got it all together, But the truth is, there are many in churches and even a number in our church that if they were being totally transparent about some painful things that may have happened in their past or maybe in their present, they would say, I'm really struggling. Some of these things can be heart-wrenching. You say, where is God in the midst of this? Maybe your faith is at, at a point of just being on hold in the midst of all of that. Maybe that's just too tough to really deal with. And, and, you know, you try to put one foot in front of the other and just ignore uh, the reality uh, of that wrongdoing, of that pain. Listen, I want to say two things this morning. First of all, with regard to this, first of all, there is, there is no injustice that has been done that will not someday be made right. I can't, I can't, again, promise that it'll be in a convenient timetable for you. But God has not forgotten, nor will he overlook any injustice. And I think in a world that is so struggling 
with, with various elements uh, of just sinful injustices, I, I think it's important for us to know, while we might not have the power to, to write things in the fullest sense possible, God will. And we need to recognize that God is near the brokenhearted. Every tear will be wiped from every eye. And the second thing I want to say is this. Hey, some of you, I would just encourage to break the silence. Find somebody that you can talk to. There are, there are certainly people here on staff that would, would love to help and, and or put you in touch with, with somebody, uh, if, if necessary, to, to help further. But, but I'm saying this, the enemy of our soul loves to isolate. He loves to keep us in, in this place of hurt and pain and, and just feeling like there's no hope. And, and folks, that's not God's will for your life. Perfect justice will be realized. Hey, the third one I want us to, to think about, assurance. Assurance will be found in Jesus. Assurance before the king. And listen, uh, I would just say this much, right? This story centers around Esther's courageous decision to, to put her life in her own hands, so to speak, and to seek an audience with the king. And we know it's in fear and trepidation because if he doesn't respond favorably, it's all over. And the truth is, you and I and every person on this earth stand in a parallel position to Esther because there will come a day where we will all stand before our king. And in a very real sense, we've got a lot more to be fearful of than Esther did or even Haman, as we stand before the living God of this universe, the true king. But <laughs> there is hope. While, while nobody will be on a right footing before that king on the day of judgment, uh, we need to know that the whole message of the gospel all over this thing is that in Christ, putting our faith in what he's done for us to cancel our sins has brought us to a place of being able to approach the throne of God in boldness and in confidence, knowing that it will be favor that we receive from Almighty God and not uh, the, 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 the punishment that we would otherwise deserve. That's been placed on Christ if you've put your trust in him. Now, here I would say this. I, I might get many uh, amongst us to say, hey, I know the gospel message. Yeah, thank you for that refresher. But listen, I, I want to say this. It, it is so common that I run into people and have conversations, and though they can tell you the gospel without any hesitation, they will also acknowledge that they, that they have difficulty from time to time believing that God is fully pleased with them, that God has total favor upon them. In other words, they struggle with the assurance of their salvation. God is wanting his people, let's draw some strength from this Esther story, to recognize that we can stand boldly uh, before him. And that should, that should change our whole disposition. It should lead us not to a let's deal with salvation and put it in our back pocket and live life as if nothing has changed. No, it should lead us to want to seek audience with the King of Kings regularly, to come before him in prayer and to come before him with gladness and joy and assurance to say, ah, oh, 
it is my joy uh, to stand before you. What would you have for me? How, how would you have me to, to serve you in this season of my life? This kind of assurance leads to a transforming of our lives. And so let me just ask you, uh, are you living in the good of the assurance that God would have if you've placed your faith in Christ? If you haven't placed your faith in him, there is no assurance. Uh, only, only fear and trepidation is the right response. But if you have placed your faith, hey, is it making that difference? Are you, are you using that as a platform to draw near to God regularly? That is his will for you. That is his heart for you. Well, it is good to know that unlike King Xerxes, uh, God doesn't make any misjudgments, nor will he be given to any faulty, uh, you know, kind of punishments or anything like that. His judgments are perfect. But needless to say, uh, we need the assurance uh, that he alone can provide. Well, the final thing that we want to just kind of rest on today is just this joyful acknowledgement that the curse itself will be conquered. And we see that in Mordecai's second decree, right? There is joy and jubilation that begin to fill the land. And folks, I got to say very clearly that this is a foreshadowing of what's to come. You, you want a, a good kind of a, a summary of that foreshadowing. Hey, spend some time over the next week reading Revelation 19 through 22. That's the end of the Bible. That's the spoiler, right? But I want to tell you what, uh, it, it, will, it will gladden the heart if you're, if you're seeking to live a life for God because it, it will remind us that that Genesis 3 curse that God couldn't simply revoke that curse upon the earth for, for the sins of humanity, God couldn't just simply whimsically do away with it. If he did... It would compromise who he is. He would cease to be holy God if he simply revoked the curse that stood against us. But in a very real way, in Christ, a second decree, see, like Haman gave, the, I'm sorry, like Mordecai gave the second decree that overcame Haman's curse, hey, the, the whole idea uh, that parallels is that Christ will come and he will, he will be the one to decree a new covenant promise, a new reality that can stand for the believer, not counting our sins against us, but, but really giving us a new nature that overcomes the curse of Genesis 3. This, this is a wonder. This is truly astounding. And he does it without ever compromising who he is. That second decree is going to triumph over the first. Now, I would just say, uh, in kind of wrapping that up, right, we've, we've got to, to recognize that God in his omniscience and in his goodness, he had that second decree already fashioned before time began. We don't have time this morning to unravel like, hey, how could that... Well, there are all sorts of questions around that. But the Trinity, okay, was in full agreement that the Son would come to bring that second 
uh, decree and to put it into effect, even at the cost of his own life. And we need to just recognize uh, something of God's goodness here uh, in this. And joy and jubilation is most certainly uh, the end result. And so uh, I would just say these four things, uh, you know, remind us that God is at work even when we can't see him, that he's not indifferent uh, to our circumstance, and that we are, I think, called very clearly uh, to let the, the themes of the story of Esther continue to make inroads into our hearts and lives. And so, really, that's where I want to uh, leave us this morning, just w- with an encouragement and a challenge to say, hmm, has anything that I've said kind of stirred in you this morning, uh, encouraged you, challenged you? Listen, don't, don't just... Don't just passively leave here and allow those things to fall by the wayside, right? God's encouragement to us is to put the themes and the beauty of what we see in His Word into action, to taste and see that they are good. Hey, that might involve taking something I've said this morning and, and, and really praying about it, getting personal with God on it. It, it, might, it might look like making a change if a change is needed. It might look like talking to somebody. You know, your faith has never been meant to be a private affair. Who do you have in your life that you, you kind of kick some things over about any of the week's sermons with, right? And put these things into conversation. Let them find traction in your week, right? This is, this is God's will for you, that your faith would grow as you begin to, to give, you know, conversation to these things as well. And, you know, maybe there's other things uh, that you can think of here, but my, my point is, let's not let these fall. God has every intention that His providential love would not leave us to linger where we've been but would continue to propel us forward in strength and in courage, as we said last week, even in boldness. So I want to challenge you this morning. Hey, review some of these themes and continue. Continue to say, hey, I need to draw a connection from this story to my life. And, and I would just say, it's not just Esther. Anytime you're in Scripture, hey, how can I draw from this story how can I put that into my life? Because that's, that's where the two become, you know, unified. And that's, that's God's intention for us, to take us beyond uh, where we're presently at, to help us to grow in the likeness of His Son. Well, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time together. We praise You for Your loving kindness. And Lord, we acknowledge so readily that there are so many times where we get derailed by the things that are immediately in front of us. And so often we don't tend to our faith in the full measure that we ought. But I want to pray, Lord, no matter where we're at in our faith walk, that you would encourage us and strengthen us with the themes that we've looked at this morning. Give us, Lord, Holy Spirit, help to continue to put on uh, the truth that you are reigning, even if invisibly that you've made uh, a way for us to stand before you, that you would give us the confidence that no matter what has happened to us, that you will bring justice in a day to come, and that the curse that has stood against all of humanity, Lord, in Christ, is definitely conquered. We just pray that these 
would make a definite difference in our daily life. And Lord, as we, as we wrap up, I just want to pray for those that may be presently struggling just in, in such a deep way. Maybe uh, some of the pain that I talked about earlier, maybe, maybe that's very persistent and present. I want to pray that your, your loving hand would uphold that person, and I pray that you would strengthen them and provide them a way forward. We pray for your grace now. We give you our praise in Jesus' name. Amen.